0: Can God be known? And if he can, what comes first? Faith in God or in understanding about God? Do we have faith that then leads to knowledge of God? Or can we find our way to God through reason, through understanding, by learning, These questions were running throughout Europe in the centuries leading up to the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century. And in these centuries leading up to the Reformation, there was a growing movement in the church seeking to understand how one comes to know God. Some of these earlier theologians in Europe were really pressured by the cultural winds of their time. The culture in Europe herself was growing restless. In knowledge and understanding. Particularly intellectually. Great universities began to spring up all throughout during this period. Leaning up to the, what we know as the Protestant Reformation. And this renaissance in thinking was fueled by a group of theologians called the Scholastic's. They were called that because they were champions of education and teaching and learning. And one of their disciples and one of their students, a young and -and up-and-coming theologian who would stand the test of times, Mr. Thomas Aquinas, he was their brightest thinker. And he began slowly through his own study and teaching teaching, To change really all the way Western civilization thought. Thought about God. Thought about how to know God. Historian Robert Olson would write of Aquinas later. He cannot be considered anything other than the single greatest theologian of the Western Catholic tradition. He stands in comparison to the 5th century Augustine all the way down to modern day theology or theologians. And it is true, Aquinas' theology is immense. And it still undergirds much of Catholic theology today. If you grew up as a Catholic, you would have learned much about Thomas Aquinas. Maybe not by name, but his theology is what undergirded all of really modern Roman Catholicism. What Aquinas was challenging, though, was another scholastic who came earlier than him a guy by the name of Anselm of Canterbury. And Anselm was a disciple of Augustine, the the great uh, uh, Egyptian theologian from the 5th century. And Augustine had championed this belief that we believe in order to understand. And Anselm came along some centuries later, picked up this and really became a mantra for him. Well, what Aquinas was attacking was the fact that he thought that one could reason their way to God. Thomas Aquinas taught that one through knowledge and through education and through study could find their way to knowing God. This is why universities began to litter the landscape. Because the prevailing thought of the day was the more educated you are, the more godly you will become. That understanding leads to faith. It's no wonder why, centuries later, a guy by the name of John Calvin, when he would go to write down his theolo- theological treaties of the church, called the Institutes, he begins his theological book with the knowledge of God seeking to reclaim what Anselm and Augustine had taught centuries earlier. This discussion, while it isn't brimming in our own congregations today, what plagues us is really the pendulum opposite of what they were dealing with in their own day. For us today, what we deal with is this lack of understanding and growing in the knowledge of God. As is so often the case when the pendulum swings to one extreme, like understanding leads to to faith. We swing the pendulum so far to the the other side that we diminish the knowledge of God and the need to grow and understand. We say, all you need is faith. Just have faith. Just let go and let God. Just believe. Believe. This theology is very popular today. It has been popular for the last half century or more. Where all you need to know is to believe in God, to have faith, and you'll be saved. Well, this is not what Anselm or Augustine before him taught, nor did the Apostle Paul. God desires us to have faith. And it is by faith that we receive salvation. Salvation. And nowhere in Scripture are we taught that we have to understand all the things about God in order to believe that God exists. No, we are told to have faith in God and that God will give us understanding. And so what Augustine and Paul before him in the New Testament champion was faith seeking understanding. Faith seeking understanding. In other words, faith and reason, faith and knowledge go together. They're, they're twins. You can't have one without the other. Faith leads to a growing knowledge of who God is. And so, as Christians, we give ourselves to growing in the knowledge of God. We don't merely say, I have faith and that's sufficient. No, throughout the Bible, and particularly throughout the New Testament, we see that God's people grow in their knowledge of Him. Friends, this is exactly what Paul is praying for for the Ephesian church. He prays that the Ephesian church might not grow stagnant and stale, like standing water in a pond that skims over and begins to stink, but rather would be refreshed and growing deeper in the knowledge of God. Why? He would pray later in Ephesians 3 that they would grow to this expansive knowledge of God's love for them in Christ. Friends, God has has given us His Word here in Ephesians and as the Apostle Paul has written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he began his letter with this grand eulogy. 200 or more words contained in one sentence where, where Paul just burst out in exclamation. Exalting God for his work of redeeming sinners. And as he was reflecting on God's work generally, he began to think about it more specifically in the church in Ephesus, which led him here in verses 15 to 23 to burst out in prayer and thanksgiving. Thanking God for the work that was evident in their lives and praying that they would know God better. He prays that they would grasp all the rich eternal blessings that have come to them in Christ. And so now I want us to turn there to Ephesians. I'm going to read just for context. We're only going to consider this morning verse 18 in our time this morning. It's a very rich verse, but to gain our context and bearings, I'm going to read beginning in verse 15. For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, Well, as I said this morning, we're going to consider verse 18. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? Paul here in this passage prays that Christians would grow in the knowledge of God. And I've summarized it in this way. Christians pray for the Holy Spirit. To give illumination so that, they would know, so that they would grow in knowledge and understanding of God's rich grace toward them in Christ. And so the title of the sermon is sought to really summarize this whole thing. Knowing God's grace. This is what Paul is praying here for us. And so the purpose of our time really is to, to delve into that, to try to unearth that, to think about that together. And Paul outlines really two aspects of God's grace in Christ that they would know better. But before we do that, before we dig into what Paul prays for, we want to consider why Paul prayed. The purpose of Paul's prayer. So first I want you to see in verse 18 the purpose of Paul's prayer. That we as Christians are to pray to have spiritual eyes to know God better. That we cannot know God apart from the Spirit's illuminating power. That we can't reason our way to God, but rather we must be revealed through the Spirit. So look at verse 18 again. Look at what Paul says. Paul continues in verse 18 to offer this reason. He prayed that they would have spiritual eyes having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. Uh, the, the word here, heart, doesn't describe the you know, beating organ in our body that pumps blood around, uh, but as a metaphor for our soul. It's an Old Testament kind of word picture that describes who a person is. It's their soul. It's who they are. It's their being. It's the powerhouse of their intellect and reason and action. Our hearts are who we are. Remember what Jesus said to his disciples and to the Pharisees. Out of the heart comes these things, these evil actions. That is, that's who we are. And this is why Paul prays that their hearts might have eyes to see. Well, literally our beating hearts don't have eyes. Paul here is pointing this metaphor of seeing. That they would see God. That they would know God. That they would understand who he is. This is why Jesus would often use this same metaphor when speaking with unbelievers. He would call the Pharisees, you'll remember, blind guides. uh, Those who didn't have spiritual eyes to see. And you'll remember in Jesus' healing ministries, he would often heal blind persons as a sort of illustration of their internal need for spiritual life. In other words. Just as a blind person cannot see apart from a miracle of God. So we cannot see spiritually apart from the miracle of illumination. We need God to turn the lights on so that we can see. This is what we heard in the call to worship. When Paul told the church in Corinth that for God is has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. God opens blind eyes. Spiritually blind eyes so that we can see Jesus. In other words, so that we can know Jesus. and Believe in him. Notice again what Paul says here in verse 18. Having the eyes of your hearts Enlightened. So that, or that, you may know. The purpose of spiritual eyes isn't for us to merely have knowledge like of facts about God. As I said last week, this word know is the same word that Moses uses to talk about Adam and Eve. That Adam knew his wife. It's a sense of intimate knowledge and exhaustive understanding of one another. Let me illustrate it this way to you. Uh, Many of you will remember Caleb from the Old Testament. Uh, Caleb was one of the spies that Moses sent down into the promised land to spy out the land. He sent a representative from each of the tribes. And you'll be reminded that Caleb and Joshua were really the only ones that uh, saw things differently. All of the 12 men who went down there and tasted the grapes and ate of the honey and drank of the milk and experienced all of the promised land and to see it for all of its glory, each of them, all 12 of them, saw the exact same things. They experienced the exact same things. Uh, The grapes tasted the same in every one of their mouths. The, The milk was the same. One didn't have spoiled milk and the other didn't have good milk. No, they all had the same thing. They all experienced the same thing. But only two of them said that they should go. The other 10 were afraid. They saw how great and massive the people were. What did Caleb see? What did Joshua see? Well, we know that Caleb didn't see anything. He didn't see some secret that the others didn't see. No. What was different about Caleb is he wore different glasses, he had different eyes. Remember what Moses recorded for us. Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and occupy the land, for we are well able to overcome it. He saw how big they were, he saw how massive the armies were, but he had spiritual eyes to see God's promises fulfilled. He saw differently because he had different eyes. Caleb wasn't naive. He knew that the Philistines and the Canaanites could rip them to pieces. He saw how they were grasshoppers. In We were as grasshoppers in our minds, But for Caleb, he saw with spiritual eyes. And these enlightened eyes is what Paul is praying for. That the church in Ephesus would have enlightened eyes to know God. To believe His promises. These enlightened eyes are what could turn a cold, dark Roman prison into an evangelistic outpost. If you have your Bibles open, just turn over to chapter 6 in verse 19. Chapter 6 in verse 19. Paul invites them to pray for him. And pray for me that the words given to me In opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. For which I am an ambassador in chains. That I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Paul was in the midst of a dark, cold Roman prison. But he had enlightened eyes to see. That his present circumstances were being used by God. For his glory. It became an outpost for Explosive evangelism across the Roman world. He had enlightened eyes, hearts to see God's glory. And brothers and sisters, that's what we need today. We need spiritual eyes to see that our present situations are for God's glory. Trials are not meant to keep us from God, but to show us his work in our lives. That we might know him better. You think about it, if I never let any of my children walk, if I just carried them around all the time, and I just kind of like kept them on leashes all the time, which might be convenient at times, <laughs> how they would never learn to trust me. We know that well, right? If, if we don't ever let our children get hurt, well, they can never know, learn how to trust us and our care for them. And so it is with God. If God doesn't put us in vulnerable places and in difficult circumstances and trial. Friends, then we'll never know that we can trust the Lord. And so we pray, God, give me spiritual eyes that I can see what you're doing, that I might know you. And so, brothers and sisters, every time you open your Bible, each day when you go to To read your Bible. You want to begin the way Paul begins this. Pray that the Spirit would give you illumination. Lord, give me eyes to see your word. Reveal yourself to me today through your word. That I might know you better. Brothers and sisters, on Saturday nights, one of the greatest things you can do is to pray that God would speak through His word on the Lord's day. As we gather together. Pray throughout our time as you gather. Pray that that those sitting around you might have illumined eyes, enlightened eyes, spiritual glasses, heavenly glasses to see God's glory in His Word. That we might grasp and understand all that God has done for us. Pray for one another regularly that God would speak through His Word. Brothers and sisters, of course, in our evangelism, In our evangelistic efforts as we are thinking about sharing the gospel? Could it be that sometimes our evangelistic efforts fall and fail because we've never prayed? Friends, you will never convince anyone. Your argument will never be compelling. This is why Spurgeon once said that apart from the Spirit, it's easier to teach a tiger to be a vegetarian then it is an unregenerate person, the gospel. You'll never be able to teach someone the gospel unless the Spirit of God has illumined their eyes to see. This passage warns us this morning, if you're not a Christian, that reason will not get you to God. That mere understanding and intellect is insufficient to truly knowing God. Commit to memory God's word in James, where where James tells the the brothers and sisters that even the demons believe that even the demons know God. They're they're not they're not up there having ontological arguments and cosmological arguments and all these arguments about whether God exists. They're not wrestling through these. They know who God is. They don't have saving knowledge of God. And as Christians, I think so often we envy unbelievers. We envy the sort of freedom that they have. They can live life the way they want to live. And sometimes deep down we we envy. At the end of the day, we're kind of like, man, I wish I could do that. I wish I could live that way. Yet the Bible says that they are spiritually blind. That they cannot see reality. Reality. And brother, sister, I just ask you, what is there to envy about spiritual blindness? There is nothing to envy in spiritual blindness. Brother and sister, let me encourage you with this thought today. That everyone needs the spirit to know God. Everyone. From the Hebrew and Greek scholar, to the seminary professor, to the pastor. And you may be here today and you might consider yourself to be somewhat knowledgeable about God. A somewhat educated person, highly knowledgeable about the things of God. Brother, sister, let me remind you that that knowledge did not come through your own intellect. That your knowledge was revealed to you through the Holy Spirit. You did not come to know God, reason your way. You did not find God. He found you. And brother, sister, if you find yourself, you find your mind too dull, perhaps your reading ability lacking, I want you to know today that you don't need to have a high school diploma or a college education or a Ph.D. to know God. That his spirit will reveal Him to you. And in my short journey with Christ, I find often it is the lowly sister, the one that maybe has a 5th grade reading level, that has a greater grasp on the glory of Christ than the one who's read the Bible a hundred times and can quote from Hebrew and, and Greek text. Rest assured this morning, That you can know God. But you must pray. And pray we must. Pray that God would give us eyes to see and to know Him better. Well, Paul continues in our our text here to pray for two specific things. There's really three. Verse 18 contains two. Verse 19 contains a third prayer request. And we'll consider that third one next week. Uh, He prays here in this text that they would know the hope. To which he has called them. That they would know the riches of God's inheritance. And then in verse 19, we'll consider next week, that they would know the power at work, not merely in the world, but in them. The power of God is at work in them. Well, we see first here in verse 18 that Paul prayed prayed that they would know the hope. And so... In terms of application, we want to pray to know the hope. The hope that you've been called to as God's chosen one. Well, let's look here at the text. Look with me again at verse 18. Paul prays that they would know what is the hope to which he has called you. In other words, Paul prays that they would know and understand all the rich blessings they have in Christ. Paul uses this word hope to refer to all of God's blessings in Christ. He's used it previously in verse, look with me here, in verse 11. He says that they were the first to hope in Christ. And then later in verse 4, a very familiar or chapter 4, in verse 4, look with me there. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your Call. Now, what does Paul mean by hope? What, what is hope? Well, hope is all the means and connections with the ends of our redemption in Christ. Well, let me demonstrate it this way. You don't have to turn there, I'm going to rattle off a couple of verses. In Galatians 5:5, 5, 5, Paul speaks about the hope of righteousness. That is, we hope to be righteous. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says that there is the hope of the resurrection. We hope that we will rise from the dead. In 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul says the hope of salvation. And then throughout Titus, the hope of eternal life. And then in chapter 2 of Ephesians, Paul says that these Ephesians were once without hope. And without God. Hope is the expectation to receive all that God has promised to us in Christ. It's a confident expectation. It's a sure hope. Like a prism in a light, Paul is taking hope and turning it and saying, this is what we're hoping for. Oh no, this is what we're hoping for. Oh, we're hoping for this. So we're not merely hoping for eternal life, but Paul says we're hoping for all Of the rich blessings that come to us in Christ. Notice what Paul says here in verse 18. That we have been called to this hope. He prays that they would grasp this. Because they've been called to this. There's a connection between our hope. And our divine election in Christ. We often hope for things that we I think, can relatively grasp happening. In other words, we use the word hope like we use the word wish. I hope to get a good grade on the test. I hope to pass my class this semester. I hope to get a new job. I hope I have enough saved up for retirement. In other words, we hope for the things that we think we're pretty confident are going to happen. And so we kind of say we hope it happens, you know. I mean, I for the test. I mean, I hope I get a good grade on it. I mean, I did all the work I was supposed to do in the class. So I hope I pass it. I'm saved religiously throughout my working years. I hope I have enough for retirement. But what Paul uses here is a sort of idea of confident assurance. There's no doubt Of its future reality. This is what the author of Hebrews would say. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The things not yet seen. Hope in a biblical sense is in a a certain reality. A certainty that rests solely. Not on us. But on God. Who has promised that everything will be received. Friends this is why Paul twice in this letter. Will connect our election, our call to our hope. He's reminding the church that our assurance is solely in Christ and our election not in our ability. That's why we sing songs like He Will Hold Me Fast. Because our assurance rests not in our ability to hold fast. Because if it was rested on us, we would have let go a long time ago. This is why Paul... would write in Romans eleven twenty nine, 29. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. In other words, God never goes back on his word. When he said, I called you. He doesn't say, well, now that we've kind of seen you. We're not, we don't want you. No, Brothers and sisters, this and this alone is what gives us hope. That you can have confident assurance today of salvation. Because God has called you in Christ. And the evidence of your calls we considered last week, was the faith that you have in the Lord Jesus and the love you have for all the saints. The fact that you still have faith today so many years later. This is not because you're just a really a, a amazingly consistent person. Friend, if you've been a Christian for many decades, we attribute, of course, your faithfulness to God's assurance that he's called you. Friend, do you lack assurance today? I know many of you struggle with this in your own spiritual walk with the Lord. You struggle with assurance. How can I know? And many of you, as you draw closer and closer to the Lord calling you home, it it just becomes even more heightened and fully aware. How can I know? brother, sister, Paul prayed that they would know. And so pray. Put in your prayers. Lord, give me an assurance of my salvation. Uh, Give me uh, confidence in this hope that I have of eternal life with God. Pray that you would know all the riches in Christ. I pray that this morning that the Lord would just sort of turn the lights on. And show you. Give you a tour of all of these rich blessings you have In Christ, from your imputed righteousness to the forgiveness of your sins to your eternal dwelling with God. And many, many more. The very fact that the spirit dwells within you is an assurance itself of God's love for you. And more to the point. May our lives match the hope to which he has called us. In chapter 4, Paul makes a connection between the hope to which we've been called and we're walking worthy of that call. In other words, our lives match the hope that we have. Friend, does your life match this hope you have in Christ? Do your actions reflect one who has hope in another world? Does your spending habits reflect one who has hope in another world? Do the way you invest in the future and in others demonstrate your hope in Christ? Do the things that occupy your mind and the entertainment that you enjoy and the blog post that you read, in the Facebook, whatever you're reading, does it demonstrate? When you read the headlines in the newspapers and you get this sense of angst about you, does that demonstrate a hope in this world or in the one to come? Let us pray that we would grow in our knowledge of our own salvation, that we would grasp the grace of God in our lives, that we would grow to be fully assured of all the rich blessings that are ours in Christ. Well, Paul goes on to pray, secondly, that we would know the riches that we have as God's inheritance. Look with me again at verse 18. Paul continues, what that I pray that you would know, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? Paul wants them to know and understand their inheritance as sons and that that they are God's inheritance, his special possession. Now, I'll confess as I was reading this passage earlier in the week, thinking through it. Not thinking well, apparently. And having committed it to memory some years earlier, um, I kind of missed uh, the overarching point of it. And maybe you have this morning as well. Look with me again at verse 18. Paul prays that they would know the riches, not of our inheritance, but of his inheritance. What is or who does this his refer to well of course naturally it refers to god that that in other words what he's saying here is that that we are god's inheritance paul wants them to come to this sort of light bulb moment illuminating moment where they would recognize that they are somebody <laughs> you are god's inheritance you are his Treasured possession. Earlier in verse 11, Paul had referred to this inheritance as ours. And it is true that we have an inheritance in heaven. But Paul's point here is not that we would grow in a knowledge of our rich treasures in heaven. No, his point is not that we would grow to like, you know, talk and pontificate about the the streets of gold and the glassy sea. But that way we know and understand that you and I in Christ are God's inheritance. Now I want you to think with me here a little bit. The eternal God of the universe could have created anything for which he could enjoy for all of eternity. Anything. Anything he could think of that he could amass together Legions of angels. Thousands upon ten thousands. But rather. He chose. A group of sinners like us. To be his. Enjoyment. A sort of ragtag group of rebels. Who wanted nothing to do with him. Who in fact wanted to destroy his son. And kill this son. Yet chose. To redeem. That he might enjoy. God wanted to enjoy us. Like me. Some of you have daughters. And I bet many of you. Would welcome gladly. A a godly. Upstanding. Respectable young man. To to date your daughter. Would have no issue with that. Whatsoever perhaps. But oh. Oh how. You and I would be the first. To perhaps kill that young man. Had he do, done or would do any harm to our child. <laughs> but isn't it amazing. That God would choose. As a bride for his son. For his enjoyment. A group of sinners like us. It's the marvel and wonder of the gospel. F.F. F. Brusa, a well-known theologian from a century ago, reflecting on this passage this morning, writes this, that God should set such a high value on a community of sinners rescued from perdition and still bearing too many of the traces of their former state might well seem incredible, were it not made clear that he sees them in Christ. And as from the beginning, he chose them in Christ. It's marvelous that God sees us today, not as our sinful selves. And so we sing, rock of ages, cleft for me, save from wrath and make me pure. That not only are we saved from God's wrath, but we have been given the imputed righteousness of Christ. And so Paul would write in Ephesians 5. That Christ has loved his bride and gave himself up for her. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. That he might present the church to himself in splendor. That she, the church, might be holy and without blemish. Brother, sister, this is the wonder of the gospel that he takes sinners and makes them saints. That that we, we know the depth of our own depravity. We know how vile and wicked we are. That God would have chosen us before the foundation of the world to be his. That's mine. That's mine. That's mine. We need to grow in our knowledge. We need help to grasp this. That God has been working since eternity past to prepare heaven for our arrival. Because we are his possession. We are his children. Brother, sister, do you feel a stranger in this world? Does this world just grow increasingly cold to you? I hope that it does. Does the growing immorality around you in our culture cause you to weep? I hope it does. Because this world is not our home. We are just merely passing through this world. We're going to a place that has been prepared for us. in a few weeks... My family is going to take a trip home to Illinois. One of the comical things that happens every time is we talk to our parents and they begin preparations weeks ahead of time, making sure all the food is bought and making sure all the kids have what they need. And this passage reminds us this is exactly what God is at work doing. Preparing a place for us because we are His possession. I'm reminded of a young high school student that one time came to me after a sermon. She was somewhat frustrated. I think overly just disappointed. As she thought about what heaven was. As her mind was sort of trying to understand. She began to ask me several questions. A sort of look of disappointment was on her face. And I asked her, what's wrong? That's all heaven is going to be? Just a bunch of singing and praising of God? That seems incredibly boring. And I'll be honest, I I agreed with her. Yes, that does sound very boring if your understanding of what worship is is from your own experience here in this church. Oh, heaven is so much more glorious than that. Our own experiences would never be able to shed a a glimmer of light upon the glories of heaven. To experience God, to know Him, and to more than that, to be known by Him. To be enjoyed by Him. Heaven is inexpressible. The highest glory in all of the universe is to know God and to know Him forever. Friend, does that describe you today? Does that describe your vision of heaven? You know, angels floating in clouds? That's boring. That's terrible. That's awful. Is it just some big reunion in the sky where you just get to know the aunts and uncles that you you never really got to know? Oh, heaven is more than that. You know those nights, mornings that you've sat with your Bibles open, having prayed, God, just speak to me. And it's as if He just heard that prayer and instantaneously spoke to you through His Spirit. And you read the Bible and, like, I understand. I know. I have a sense of who you are. That's heaven times a million. Growing in our knowledge of God. Delving into the depths of the greatness and glory of who God is. And as Christians, we must give ourselves to praying for illumination. Pray that God would give you eyes to see this world for all of its ugliness. And to see Him for all of His splendor and glory. Apart from prayer, you will never know God. And so cry today. Cry out now. Pray. God, reveal Yourself through Your Word to Me. Speak to Me. Give time today in your prayers, praying to grow in the knowledge of God's eternal election in Christ. Say, you have hope because you're called. And you are God's eternal inheritance in Christ. I conclude with this from J.I. Packer in his book, Knowing God. He summarizes the whole point very well when he writes. What will make heaven to be heaven is the presence of Jesus. And of a reconciled divine father who loves us for Jesus' sake no less than he loves Jesus himself. To see and know and love and be loved by the father and the son in the accompanying with the rest of God's vast family, is the whole essence of the Christian hope. If you're a believer, he says, and so adopted child, this prospect satisfies you completely. But if it does not strike you as satisfying to spend your days knowing God, it would seem as yet that you are neither a Christian nor a child of God. Let's pray. Father, we pray this morning. Lord, we pray that you would open our eyes that we might see your glory. Give us each today spiritual eyes to know you and understand your ways better. Help us to know and have a feeling sense of your amazing grace given to us in Christ. Let us pass our days dwelling upon and knowing you better. For your glory alone and for our eternal good in Christ, we pray. Amen.